You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 66. Hello, ladies and gents. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, the creator of Metamore City and your guide to worlds of fantasy and wonder. This is the show where I share my fiction with you, available in audio for the first time anywhere. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. For now, though, let's move on to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you the second half of Chapter 19 in my Metamore City novel, Things Unseen. If you're new to this show, you'll want to go back in the feed to Episode 24 and listen to this story from the beginning. Once you're caught up, follow me onward to this week's spoiler-filled story recap. Metamore City Police Detective Catherine Catane is in big trouble. She and her partner David were transporting an important witness across town when they were ambushed by agents of the Vampire Crime Syndicate. The Syndicate's head enforcer, a vampire named Fisher, kidnapped Kate and David's charge and took her away for questioning. Meanwhile, his subordinates took Kate and David and threw them into a hole in Trent Tower, the heart of the dangerous sector of the street known as Hunter's Hollow. The two detectives found themselves in a hive-like warren full of strange alien larvae, all surrounding the vitrified remains of the tower's nuclear pocket reactor, which melted down many years ago. At first, they saw no adult hunters, apparently because most of them were out foraging, but as they came closer to the exit, they encountered one of the guards the monsters had left behind. Kate and David tried to hide from the beast behind one of Kate's illusions, but the monster appeared to track them by scent. As it reached out its long, deadly tongue toward Kate's face, Kate's nerve shattered. She shot the beast three times in the head with her pocket pistol. This killed the hunter, but it also released a flood of alarm pheromones into the tunnels, which alerted the other hunters and sent them moving swiftly in Kate and David's direction. Running toward the exit, our heroes came upon a broad, high chamber with a staircase leading down to the floor far below, a floor that was crawling with the alien hunters, and all of them were headed for Kate and David. Things Unseen a novel of Metamore City, written and read by Chris Laster. Chapter 19 Continued Kate looked down at the oncoming tide of hunters, trying to get a rough count of their numbers. More than fifty, less than a thousand... Beyond that, she wasn't sure. She checked the clip on her little holdout pistol. Four rounds left, plus one in the chamber. The numbers really didn't matter at this point. David? Kate found herself backing up against her partner. Her free hand touched his, and she reached for it, squeezing hard. I don't want these things to get me, David. Do you understand? I won't go out like that. David squeezed back. 
I understand. The hunters had reached the staircase now, and there they hesitated. The first several creatures looked up, their tentacles waving and snuffling. A new scent filled the air, something like nutmeg mixed with urine. They began to climb, their motions deliberate and wary. Part of Kate's mind had disengaged from her terror and was watching the spectacle with a detective's curiosity. Why the sudden caution? Perhaps the hunters wondered what these unfamiliar bipeds were doing in their lair. Perhaps they smelled the magic on Kate and David, the mark of two beings used to channeling power. Perhaps they suspected some trap or deception. And why shouldn't they? Kate thought. I doubt food just comes knocking on their front door too often. The irony, of course, was that there was no deception, and Kate and David had about as much chance of stopping them as a newborn kitten would. Without their arcane foci, Kate and David would be extremely limited in the forces they could channel, and neither of them really went in for flashy evocations anyway. Right now, the two wizards were the next best thing to Mundy's. The hunters didn't know that, but it would hardly make any difference. Once they got close enough, once they had blocked all avenues of potential escape, and Kate and David had still failed to unleash any mystic forces in their direction, then the hunters would attack, and that would be that. Kate lifted her gun slowly, her hand shaking, and began to point it at her own head. David's hand wrapped around her wrist and gently pulled it down again. Don't despair, he said gently. This isn't how it ends. Kate tore her eyes away from the approaching monsters to stare at the elf, disbelieving. His violet eyes were calm and serene. How can you know that? she hissed. How can you possibly know that? David's mouth quirked in a smile. Because I work with life energy, and I sense we are not alone here. As if on cue, a wall of golden light sprang up halfway between them and the encroaching hunters. It was two meters tall and sparkled with motes of glittering energy, but was otherwise transparent, giving Kate a good view of the room beyond. The appearance of the spell sent the hunters into a frenzy, and five of them charged it at once. They might as well have tried charging a brick wall. The shield spell chimed with the impacts, sending little ripples through its surface like stones dropped into a pond, but the strength and integrity of the barrier were unaffected. Kate looked around for the source of the spell, then followed the threads of magic back to a shadowed spot on the roof of the hall. There was someone up there, crouched on the ceiling like a spider. She caught a glint of light on glass— night vision goggles, perhaps. And then, in the eerie silence of the hunter's foiled assault, she heard a woman's voice come from the shadowy figure. Point one secured. Go. Another golden light sprang up somewhere outside, illuminating a jagged hole in the side of the building. There was a confused jostling below, as more hunters backed into the lair from outside, stepping on their fellows, their heads twitching this way and that as they tried to understand what was happening. There was a brief pause, the air filled with tension.
Then Janus Starson bellowed, Lightbringers, now! All across the front of the room below her, Kate saw a score of figures suddenly appear from behind arcane veils. They wore battle dress and tactical vests of a brilliant, dazzling white, and the uniforms shone like stars in that dark, terrible place. And then Metamore's holy warriors unleashed hell on the monsters. Some used machine guns. Some used shotguns. Two used flamethrowers. Several lashed out with magic, rays of burning light, bolts of electricity, conjured balls of boiling acid. A foul-smelling, poisonous fog erupted in the middle of the hunters, confounding their pheromone-based communications, even as it suffocated the beasts who were trapped in the middle of it. Dozens of hunters died in the first few seconds of the attack, and dozens more were trampled by their neighbors as they scrambled to find a way out of that abattoir. Some of the hunters, however, were not so easily cowed. Twice the size of the worker beasts Kate and David had fought in the tunnels, they reared up on their back four legs and waved long, mantis-like front claws as they lumbered toward the attacking lightbringers. Their shiny black carapaces shrugged off bullets and spells like bee stings, and they trampled the bodies of their own dead as they advanced. The guns fell silent, and the poison fog vanished as suddenly as it had appeared. Second team!' Janus shouted. "'Charge!' And then he raised a lemicel, the holy sword of Metamor, and led his troops into the fray. If the Lightbringers were impressive with ranged weapons, in melee they were downright terrifying. Kate saw a bullmorph, seven feet tall and covered with heavy armor, charge one of the soldier-cast hunters head-on, carrying a battle-axe taller than Kate herself. An elven bladesinger spun through the fray with a pair of glowing wakazashis, moving as elegantly as a dancer as she carved her opponents into bloody pieces. A half-celestial with huge white wings swooped and circled over the battle, spearing the massive soldier beasts through their heads with javelins that crackled with lightning as they left his hand. And in the center of it all was Janus, who amply showed why a lemicel was the most feared weapon ever crafted against the forces of darkness. The crisp-bladed sword looked deceptively small in the big man's hands, having been crafted for much shorter wielders in an earlier age, yet nearly every swing of his blade found its way to a lethal mark, and everywhere it cut, it burned. Hunters struck by the blade found their wounds smoking and sizzling, their foul blood turning to black smoke. The star sword was intimately bound to the forces of light and life, the benevolent powers of this world. When it touched the otherworldly flesh of the hunters, it rebuked the blasphemy of their existence, and thus unmade them. The hunters fled in panic from the sword and its wielder, which made it that much easier for the other lightbringers to dispatch them. Kate was so transfixed by her bird's-eye view of the battle that she didn't notice the woman behind her until she spoke. Come on, we have to get you out of here. Kate jumped and turned around. She glanced quickly up at the shadowy corner of the ceiling, now empty, and realized this was the woman who had been hanging there when the shield spell went up. 
Unlike the others, she did not wear white. Her outfit was a mottled blend of black and dark gray, and the exact pattern of the weave changed whenever she moved. Adaptive camouflage, then. Not magic, but a very sophisticated bit of mundane technology. Kate had heard of the stuff, but hadn't known anyone had it in active service. The woman was short, dark-skinned, built like a gymnast, and had her night-vision goggles pushed up on her forehead. Uh, great, Kate said. She turned and looked back at the grand melee on the floor below. How? The agent pulled a pair of vials from a utility belt, then passed them to Kate and David. Drink these, then went up the walls, across the ceiling, and out. Kate knew better than to examine the potion too closely before drinking it. She had a guess about some of the reagents involved, and decided she'd rather not know the details. She held her nose and gulped it down. A moment later, her body seemed to grow very light, like the sensation when an express lift first began to descend. She felt a gentle tingling in the tips of her fingers and toes. Right then, the agent said. Follow me, and keep your hands and feet close to the walls. The spell's pretty short-term, and I don't want you dropping off the ceiling by accident. Would have felt a lot better if you hadn't said that, Kate muttered but she obediently followed the woman over to the nearest wall. The Lightbringer agent splayed out her fingers and toes. Kate only now noticed that the woman was barefoot, and pressed them into the wall one limb at a time. Kate quickly removed her boots, knotted together the laces, and slipped an arm through the resulting loop. By now, the agent was two meters up the wall and gesturing to Kate with sharp, hurried motions. Kate took a deep breath, pressed her fingers against the wall, and drew her knees up toward her chest. The fingers held, with only a slight tug betraying her weight. She pressed her toes against the wall and found that she could easily push herself up. Grinning, she made to lift her right hand and set a new handhold. The hand remained stuck to the wall. She looked up at the agent, embarrassed. Um... The agent looked down, saw the problem, and showed a flash of very white teeth. You have to focus on the hand you're releasing. Imagine little hooks letting go. Kate did so, and the hand came off the wall easily. Makes sense, I guess. Takes some getting used to. But it beats falling off the wall if you're distracted, the agent said. Now come on, move. Kate moved, and David followed quickly behind her. They scuttled up the wall... Onto the ceiling, a very disorienting transition that made her deeply aware of her near weightlessness, and then they were moving quickly over the battle, toward the exit and the lights beyond. Kate looked down once, as a blast of deep sonic energy shook the building around them. She saw a wave of crumpled hunters being thrown back by an unseen force, emanating from the outstretched hands of a slender young Hanese man. The blast cleared a path for Janus and his melee combatants to begin their withdrawal. Kate's stomach lurched, and she tore her eyes away from the scene, focusing instead on the agent ahead of her. A few seconds, or a lifetime later, Kate was past the second barrier and descending the opposite wall. The agent did it head first, like a spider, but Kate wasn't quite that comfortable with the spell. She climbed down quickly but carefully, feet first, as if she were descending the rock-climbing wall at the gym. 
As soon as her feet touched ground, she got the hell out of there, bolting through the hole in the wall and out into the night air. It was thick with the usual smells of truck exhaust and rotting garbage, and for Kate, it smelled like the ninth heaven. She took deep lungfuls of the stuff, breathing in the air of her world, her city, and it was glorious. The Lightbringers had brought four small assault shuttles with them, each about the size of a delivery truck. Their glistening white paint jobs looked yellow in the light of the sodium lamps. Suddenly exhausted, Kate sat down on the nose of the nearest one. She perched between a pair of large-caliber machine guns and looked back at the hole in the tower that she'd just come out of. Inside, Janus was yelling again, and then the melee fighters were running out into the street as the ranged combatants laid down another deafening wave of destruction. It went on for nearly a minute, until the guns all ran empty and the mages had used up the last of their reagents. Then they too retreated to the street, with Janus and David taking up the rear. David had gotten a sickle and a bandolier of reagents from one of the Lightbringers, and he cast a glyph of warding over the entrance. The sigil burned with a fierce cerulean light, and it spread upward and outward into the shape of a tree, with broad branches and twisting roots that surrounded the entrance and filled it with motes of sparkling light. Kate could just make out the surviving hunters as they recoiled, then turned and fled from that symbol of the natural world. I wonder if they're as repelled by our nature as we are by theirs. Probably, and that was just fine with Kate. No hunters would be coming out to follow them tonight. Janus flicked the ichor from the sword, not a drop clung to the blade, and slid it back into its sheath. He turned to look at the men and women under his command, calm blue eyes assessing their condition. Kate looked around and saw a lot of lightbringers bleeding from ragged gashes or favoring limbs marked with swollen, puckered sucker marks. The blood ran off their uniforms like rain off a duck's back, slipping to the ground in drips and drizzles until they bandaged the wounds. No one's injuries seemed immediately life-threatening, though, and Kate saw Janus relax a little as he realized it, too. David said something to him, and the two of them came over to where Kate sat. "'Are you all right, Miss Katane? Janus asked. "'Cedra said you ran out here as soon as she got you down.' Kate filed away the name of the agent who'd saved her life. She'd have to thank Cedra later, when time allowed. I'm all right now. Sorry I didn't stay to help, I just... She shook her head. This isn't my beat, Janus. I don't know how you do it. But when I heard your voice in there, I've never been so glad to see a lightbringer. Or anyone, for that matter. Janus smiled a tight and knowing expression that made crow's feet appear at his eyes. All part of the service, Lieutenant. How did you know where to find us? David asked. Janus gave Kate a look she couldn't interpret. Speculation, perhaps, mixed with something else. Then he drew a lemasil again and held it out to her, hilt first. Kate was immediately struck with that odd phantom sensation that she always felt around the sword— the feeling of leather and steel under her fingers. The sigils on the blade glowed blue-green, in exactly the same hue as her magic when she channeled it through her arthana. 
Before she even knew what she was doing, her hand had closed around the hilt. Immediately she felt a presence in her mind, something stern and watchful and very, very old. Kate felt suddenly exposed, like someone had turned on a light in the darkest corners of her heart and was examining them closely. Then the entity must have come to a decision. She felt a kind of grudging approval, and then the presence was gone. Kate snatched back her hand and looked up at Janus. What the hell? Quite the opposite, Ms. Katane, Janus said. His eyes glittered with a blue light that had nothing to do with the street lamps overhead. Alemisil has taken an interest in you. He looked over at David. The sword sensed that she was in danger, and led us straight to her. David nodded slowly. Yes, of course. It makes sense. Kate raised her eyebrows at him. That makes one of us, partner. She looked at the sword again, the elven writing still glowing blue-green on the blade. It was a very old script, even for elvish, and she couldn't read it at all. She scooted a little further back on the nose of the shuttle. Alimacil isn't just the Sword of Metamor, Janus explained. It's the Sword of Lucian himself, the founder of the Lothanasi. Alimacil bound itself to Lucian and his descendants, to serve them forever in the war against the darkness. The blade knows its own. Kate crossed her arms. You're telling me that Alimacil can track anybody who's related to Lucian? The guy lived 3,000 years ago. He must have millions of descendants by now. True, but not all of them still have the bond with the sword. Alimacil finds those who share its calling, and have the aptitude to wield it. Um, in that case, it's got the wrong girl. I've never used a sword in my life. Janus smiled faintly and slid the blade back into its sheath. All in good time. Kate wasn't sure she liked the sound of that, but for now she put it out of her mind. They had more urgent things to worry about. Speaking of time, we don't have a lot of it. Malcolm's people kidnapped Sefi. Janus's face darkened. I heard. We picked up reports of a fight on the dusk level above Hunter's Hollow. He nodded in the direction of the skyways above them. Several eyewitnesses reported seeing vampires and one gave a passable description of you, Mr. Silverleaf. Kate allowed herself a moment of satisfaction. Her neighbors on the dusk level might not be the most courageous folk in the world, but they paid attention to what happened outside their windows. And unlike most people on the street, the duskers weren't afraid to talk to the authorities. Any idea where they took Sefi? Our seers are working on that now. It won't be one of their usual bases. Malcolm will want plausible deniability for this. If you have any personal effects from the girl, that would be helpful. Kate looked over at David. She didn't leave any hairs on you, did she? David looked down at his clothes. Apparently not, or else I lost them in the nest. His ears pricked forward. Though there might be something else that would help. Do you have any Nocturna's lilies? Janus raised his eyebrows. Not personally, but I think we have one in the alchemy lab at headquarters. Let's move, Kate said. Sefi's mana won't last long, and that bastard Fisher is in for some payback. With interest, 
Janus agreed. Let's go, partner. He offered Kate a hand up. Kate took it. And that's the end of chapter 19. So the Lightbringers and the detectives have officially joined forces. Will they be able to get to Sethi in time? And what is Malcolm Ardvalis doing with her now that he has her? Find out when our story continues. N.K. Jemison said, Dreaming is impossible without myths. If we don't have enough myths of our own, we'll latch onto those of others, even if those myths make us believe terrible or false things about ourselves. So, let's see how my own myth-making is going. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 3,653 words this week, over the course of 5.5 hours, for an average writing speed of 664 words per hour. As of Friday night, when I'm writing this script, I have gone 74 days without breaking my chain. Progress is proceeding slowly on my ministry tale, the facts in the matter of Gordon Chadwick. The draft is now up to about 3,200 words, and I'm beginning to work out the shape of the story. I've been flying by the seat of my pants on this one, which is good practice for me because of how much I tend to over-prepare during the outlining phase. The downside to it is that the writing is often slow, because I'm not really sure where I'm going. I also wrote a new author commentary this week. This one, inspired by Nobilis's feedback from last week, talks about the Hunters and the role of cosmic horror in the world of Metamore City. You can read this and all of my author commentaries by becoming a Patreon patron. All you need is a credit card or a PayPal account, and you can make a monthly pledge to help support the show. The generous support of listeners like you allows me to keep making this podcast every week, without resorting to paid advertisements. As a thank you for your support, you'll also get bonus artwork and other cool stuff. If you like this show, why not join the dozens of listeners already supporting it? Go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester and make a pledge today. The link will be in the show notes. And now, the feedback. Hi Chris, this is Sarah Testarossa with some feedback for the last two parts of Things Unseen. Uh, the Hunter's Hollow last bit with uh, Death Never Smelled So Sweet, that was quite an ending of a scene and a cliffhanger of the not literal sense that I did enjoy. And thanks for commenting on the double cliffhangers last time. That was pretty interesting to hear how that ended up happening. Hi, Sarah. I'm glad you liked that final line in chapter 18. There are a few lines in this book that I've been looking forward to reading in the podcast for years now. One was this line, another was the Elven Comedy Hour bit in our taxes shop, and two more are coming up in the next two chapters. Let's see if anyone guesses what they are. But Kate's mistake, oh gosh, um, just the way that that ended up working out with how she ended up drawing them all to them. Oh, I feel so bad for them. I mean, 
you know, I have a feeling they're going to make it out of here given certain things, but still, geez, that is a lot of hunters closing in on them. I did think it was interesting how much detail you went into for the beasties, and I, you know, I liked that, and obviously it does make sense with Kate's character, as you say, but I thought it was cool, you know, how Nobilis' comment made a lot of sense, and your description of, like, kind of how the horror genre works in terms of different subsets, so to speak. That was stuff I hadn't really thought about, so it was cool to get that little insight, and I think that it makes sense how... Yes, it's supposed to be scary, but you've got to be true to the character as well. And it was just kind of neat to see how much thought you'd put into that. In terms of the most recent episode, I do recall thinking when you were talking about Morgan and her, basically how she turned into mist form, I don't remember exactly what part it was, but this was one of those chapters or episodes where I was thinking, Oh, Chris, I can tell you're a scientist. This does come up semi-frequently, and I've had the thought multiple times, and I know you are a scientist, but I just find it funny when it's not in a, like, any sort of bad way, but it's just, it entertains me when it's quite evident in your writing. Thank you. On this matter, I'm happy to say guilty as charged. I've spent a lot of time thinking about vampires and how they work in Metamore, since there's so much legend about them that I had to go through it all and decide what made sense for my world and what didn't. Oddly, though, it never occurred to me until I was actually editing this scene that Morgan would not be able to see in mist form. This may have been something that Abby Hilton pointed out to me in her beta rating. She definitely gave me notes on this chapter, but I can't remember if that's one of the things she picked up or if I figured it out on my own. But yeah, my scientific background was super helpful when I was answering questions like, how could a vampire in mist form perceive its environment? I like the idea that its whole gaseous body becomes a sort of all-purpose sensory organ, and figuring out what that meant for Morgan's perception of the tower was an interesting challenge. You are a person of science, and when you get into like the actual, like the nitty-gritty of physiology or chemistry or physics or whatever, and it's not like it's in some sort of way that's not understandable to the average. Well, I don't know what about the average person because I'm someone who did study science at a sort of higher level, some sciences anyway. So I'm kind of biased in terms of I don't know what is considered normal for people to know. But whatever the case is, I feel like it sounds accessible to me. It works well when you have characters who are also people of science, like Morgan. So, you know, if Morgan is thinking science-y things, well, that makes sense, because she's Morgan, and if she knows all the... If she's thinking in a medical sense, it makes sense, because, you know, she's the medical examiner. That's true, and I recently ran into an interesting moment in The Lost in the Least where I had to have Kate make a connection that relied on scientific knowledge. In this case, since Kate isn't a science-type person, I had to rely on her eidetic memory retaining something from an old college textbook. And, of course, she then immediately calls Morgan to make sure she's interpreting the information correctly. I did think it was kind of neat how Misty was controlling the blood flow to Zeke's brain, and I'm wondering how much she actually knew about that kind of physiological thing within terms of needing a certain amount of blood flow for him to be able to be alive and not have brain damage, but cut it off a certain amount for him to not be conscious. I'm wondering 
how much anatomy and physiology she knew before she could psychically control, or not psychically, however you called it. I forget how you、uh, phrased it. Psychically works, and it's a term I've used before. I also say psionically, and in this particular case, telekinetically. There's always been more to Misty than meets the eye. As the inner sanctum in her apartment showed, she's a woman with diverse and eclectic interests who's curious about lots of things. I don't find it at all surprising that she would have learned about the importance of blood flow to proper brain function. If nothing else, breath play is definitely a thing in the Church of Hedonism, and they would want to make sure that the faithful were properly trained in safe, sane, and consensual kink. Part of which means learning some biology. There's another factor to this too, which is that Misty's powers came with sensory abilities that she doesn't necessarily talk about. We don't know the full details of what those abilities might be, since we never see the action from Misty's perspective. But she is definitely not doing this blind. That's all I'll say for now. But I just thought that that was really interesting, and I didn't really feel too bad for Zeke at all. But I did think it was neat how you know Misty was explaining that for as bad as he can be in his normal self, this is not his normal self. He's changed, and it's interesting because you know the rest of them, their personalities seem to be pretty much the same, except for when it's the symbiotes who actually getting to be out and about and in charge. But maybe it's just like the megalomania getting to his head. You know the fact that his personality has taken a shift as well is interesting. At least I feel like the others' personalities have haven't really changed. Correct me if I'm wrong. None of the others have shown the kind of personality shifts that Zeke has. You could argue that Sethi is very different now, but that's mostly because of the burden of the vision she's having. Julia seems like she might be a bit more empathetic than she was in Chapter One. But yes, being already prone to megalomania has made Zeke uniquely vulnerable to the effects of the rift. I have this theory that being exposed to large amounts of life-aspected mana tends to make you more of what you already are. It's also important to remember that the rift is wild magic, and wild magic, by its very nature, is unpredictable. With six people having gone to the rift, it's not surprising that an effect that emerges only rarely would hit at least one of them. So yeah, I mean that's that's definitely an interesting thing that having Misty kind of looking out for Zeke in terms of wanting the real Zeke back, at least wanting him to get another chance, and it was that was a very powerful line about you know instead of the nobles not getting second chances that. Everyone should get the second chance that are afforded to nobles, and that's a powerful statement. And it's interesting, and I feel like that it's kind of controversial in a way because there are certain things for which you know our society or many societies think there should be no second chances, and certain things that we think there should be. And I feel like it varies person to person, even though we have laws set up in certain ways. If you ask ten people. You'll get a lot of different answers about whether a certain act will the person committing the act will deserve a second chance. You're right, and unfortunately, I think those opinions also tend to vary depending upon who the person is who's done wrong. We've seen a lot of talk in the news lately about questions of privilege: who has it, who doesn't, what it means to have it. 
To me, one of the most useful ways to think about privilege is this. Who gets the benefit of the doubt? Who gets a second chance when they screw up? Who receives leniency? Who receives forgiveness? I like this scene because, in a way, I think both Morgan and Misty are right. You have to judge people's actions by their effects on other people, not just by what they intended. And at the same time, we all need to be more patient, more merciful, more willing to hear the other person's story. We all need to be willing to extend grace, to hold out the hope for redemption for those who have done wrong. Because sooner or later, the person who's done wrong is going to be us. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is at facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. If you like what I'm doing on this show, leave a review on iTunes or review my books on Amazon. It really does make a difference. That's our show for this week. I'll be back next week with my interview with KT Brisky. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2013 and 2016 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.